So I'd like to introduce you now to Sandra Antonovich, COO of Reflex Marine. Over the course of the interview today, we're going to focus on the skill of focusing on what is important and not paying too much attention to the noise around you. The importance of adaptability, quick decision making, understanding your audience and communicating with people remotely without it getting in the way of business. The importance of accepting knowledge in any form in order to move forwards. Sandra's excitement about a good crisis and how women often have the tools and the ability to solve problems in a more practical manner. So Sandra, so lovely to have you with us today. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start really just a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit more about kind of your journey from the end of kind of education to getting where you are today, really. I did my university degree in Paris and then I stayed in Paris for a year just to do some work practice. After that, I started applying for more serious jobs, as my mom would say. And I started working for the Coca-Cola company. So I was based in Belgrade, Serbia, which was a regional office at the time for Southeast Europe. And I worked in finance. So my education is corporate finance. And that was quite an interesting journey for a young person like me and to have it as a first job because they have quite well organized way they work and you kind of know at all times where you stand. So they don't like to improvise, like everything is written down, there are endless policies and procedures. But I think on one hand, that was good because it sort of gave me some kind of structure. Working in finance department, I'm not quite sure anyone who goes in corporate finance is looking for creativity. <laughs> so that worked well as well, that you kind of are pre-scripted and you just have to follow the pre-written rules. I think the main benefit that I took away from working for Coca-Cola company was the adaptability and the kind of non-fiddling mindset and non-complaining mindset. The first sentence that I was told on my first day at work was, you have 72 hours to adjust, and after that, we'll consider that you have been here for years. And I thought to myself, okay, this can't be right. This is like candid camera and somebody's going to come <laughs> out and say, you are on candid camera. But I actually understood kind of in the back of my head what they were trying to achieve. And even though today, if I told anybody I hire that sentence, I would probably be labeled as horrendous boss and heartless and whatever. In back then, like 25 years ago, that actually worked because it kind of helped you focus on the important things. And you didn't dwell too much on who sits where and who has what kind of chair and, you know, whether I'm on the first floor and I want to be on the ground floor or whatever. Where is the tea room and so on. So it kind of helped you really focus. And I think that's what I took away from, like, just focus on what's important. Everything else is just noise and try to take it out of the equation. And I kept that throughout my career. So after Coca-Cola company, once I reached the finance manager, which in that circumstance was the highest role that I could have reached without moving to some other division or to some other continent. And I was getting close to the age of 30. I decided that it would be a good time to change careers. And then I did something that terrified my parents a little bit because I went into a completely different industry. I went into media 
So then I worked on in a corporation that had a TV station, radio station, web portal, book publishing. So it was completely different. So I went from fast moving consumer goods into media, spinning, advertising, marketing, but from a very different perspective. So Coca-Cola was also extremely good in marketing and advertising, but this was on the other side of the spectrum. So now I was the media kind of person. And there I went more into operations. I was still a corporate finance person. There I was the CFO, but I was also given a partial role of chief operating officer. So I went more into the operational side of business. There, I what I took away from that job and from that part of my career was, again, adaptability. But now it was with making quick decisions because you just don't have time to fiddle too much or to dwell too much on what the decision should be. Because when you have live program or when you have news every hour and they are live news, you don't have time to think about a decision for three days. You have to make a decision like right now. And I really enjoyed that. So I think that's not for everybody. Not everybody works well and operates well in that kind of setup where you have to make split-second decisions. But I did like it quite a lot. And it was a very dynamic environment where every day was quite different and you constantly had to learn a lot and everything was changing rapidly and you never knew what the next day is going to bring in terms of what's going to happen with the news program and whether you will have to change the entire program to accommodate some breaking news story. So that was quite interesting. After that, I went into, so when, as I was getting closer to late 30s and the beginning of 40s, I then again decided to change the space where I was working. And I was working for European Commission on Greenfield feasibility studies and investments and things like that. So that, on the other hand, was completely different from everything else that I have been doing thus far in my career. And it was much calmer sort of working space because you didn't have to make split decisions. You had like six months to do a feasibility study and you were working with the team of people and it had to be done in a meticulous way and you had could extend deadlines and you know so on and, and so forth. From that job, I think the most important thing that I took away was the ability to work with people that are not in the same room with you. So the ability to work with somebody in Sweden and somebody in Germany and somebody in Brussels and somebody in Canada and to work like a team and to really feel like everybody's on the same page and everybody's up to date on a daily basis, even though everybody's in their own country and nobody's actually in the same room. So five years ago, I then decided to have a career change again. And I went into energy industry, which again was completely different from everything else I was doing until now. And now I'm in my fifth year, at the end of my fifth year in the energy industry. And I think it's somehow, even though to most people it didn't make sense, why did I now go into something completely different and something that didn't have anything to do with what I was doing in the past? But actually, I think it's kind of summarizes all the takeaways that I had from my previous jobs. So it summarizes, you have to be good at marketing and advertising and selling like Coca-Cola. You have to be able to make split decisions like in media. You also have to understand the audience like in media because you are talking to different groups. If you look at different energy segments in the energy industry, the offshore wind people are 
quite different from the oil and gas people. So you have to understand your audience and you can't talk to everybody in the same way. And you can't sort of give them the same messages because they might not understand them in the same way. And then finally, you have to be able to communicate with people remotely without that getting into way of doing business. Because now on other things, I'm in charge of the commercial side of business, which also means sales. And we sell to 70 countries in the world. So you sort of have to be able to juggle between time zones and different cultures and different continents and different ways of doing business without that becoming an obstacle. I guess my question is when people are attempting to kind of move into a different career or different role within even within a business, let alone kind of into other businesses, you have to be able to really kind of showcase the transferable skills each time to land that job. How do you think you did that? What did you kind of bring to those interviews, I guess, when you were having those conversations and being able to move to such different roles each time? I think every time the sort of the deal maker rather than the deal breaker was the fact I was bringing in experience in particular field, whether it was corporate finance or operations. I think more importantly than that, I was bringing a fresh pair of eyes. So to give you an example from the energy industry, when I joined the company full time, it was November 2015, the oil price crash, everybody was cutting costs. Everybody was laying off people. It all looked pretty gloomy. We as a company, we didn't have much prospect. Like we weren't quoting a lot. We weren't having many inquiries and everything looked rather grim. So when I was being interviewed for the job, my question was, who else is on the sea? Because we mainly focus on the offshore industry. So my first question was, who else is on the sea? There must be some other people, not just oil and gas people. And everybody looked at me in complete puzzlement and also slight <laughs> horror. Like, what do you mean, who else is there? Well, oil and gas people. And I said, yes, I understand that, but there has to be somebody else there as well. It can't just be them, right? So why don't we just go and talk to those people? So that was, even though it sort of sounds like a logical thing to do, when you are doing something for 30 years or for 50 years, it may not be as obvious as to somebody who came from a completely different industry and looks at things in a completely different way. So my kind of looking at the market was impacted by the Coca-Cola company. So where are people who are thirsty? They can be anywhere. So I learned from that experience that you can't be biased. You don't have the luxury of being biased where can you find your audience or your clients? And if you start thinking, oh, my clients are only in Mayfair, London, you're not going to sell much. So you have to think my clients are in entire UK because then you have many options. You will have to find how you speak to them. So you obviously won't speak in the same way to somebody in Mayfair and to somebody in, I don't know, Paris at Edmonds, but you can reach all of them one way or another. And I think that helped me kind of position myself in each of my jobs as somebody who perhaps ruffles feathers at some point in time, but usually has questions that trigger a lot of thinking and in the end trigger diversification of the business. I mean, there's been kind of a, a significant turnaround from that time when you first started at Reflex Marine. How do you bring people with you and kind of get them on board to seeing it in your way, especially if you're coming from somewhere completely different and you're coming at it with a completely different vision or a completely different set of eyes? 
I think there are several layers to the answer to that question, and some of them are sometimes challenging to explain or are perceived as perhaps not politically correct in explanation. <laughs> I think there are several kind of, particularly with this industry, because I came into a company that even though now we describe ourselves as we supply products to the energy industry, back in 2015, the description was we supply products to oil and gas industry. And so I came then into a UK company as a woman, as a non-UK, like a person who is not a UK resident, or as somebody who doesn't come from Flamberger or Shell or BP. So somebody who doesn't have oil and gas background. So it's one thing if you are a woman and you move from Shell to BP and then you move from BP to Total. But it's a completely different thing if you are a woman and you are in your 40s and you kind of parachute into an oil and gas supply industry. So obviously there are people who then are looking at you like, okay, you just sit there and, you know, look pretty and don't ask too many questions. And then, you know, 10 or 20 years, you might start to understand something. There are obviously people on the other side of the aisle who find your perspective, which doesn't have any baggage because you are not coming from the industry. So you're not hung up on, you know, what happened in 1984 or what happened in you don't have that kind of baggage with you and then that they find it refreshing that the new questions different questions why can't we do it like that why can't we do it like this well what does it mean that we've always done it like that why can't we just change it but overall there was a resistance so overall, I think it's just like a natural human reaction. We don't like change or we think we like change when we want it, but not when somebody else comes and then starts asking us a lot of questions. I suppose it would be the same if somebody came to my home and started asking me, oh, why did you put this painting here? Why don't you put it in the bedroom? And I would be like, what? <laughs> Like, why do we want to change now? So there was a resistance. And I think my first year in Reflex Marine was very much about that. It was not about me trying to prove to somebody that I can do the job, but it was more me trying to find a way to explain to people who have been in the industry for 20 years that there are other ways to make tea. You can use a tea bag or you can use loose tea or you can put loose tea in a tea bag or you can just put loose tea in a teapot like there more than one way how to make tea and obviously some of them couldn't cope with that and there were lots of frictions and then it's the question of how you deal with that and especially how you deal with that as a woman in a predominantly male industry and whether you care how you are perceived i think if i came to the industry when i was younger i probably would have taken it much harder but because i came to the industry to energy industry when i was already in my 40s i didn't really care what anybody thought i didn't really care how i was perceived the only thing that i cared is can i move the added value for the company that i work for can i move it in the right direction so can i do something that would add value and that would either increase sales or increase reach or add another two countries to our portfolio or close a fleet deal or something. And once you distinguish in your head that you don't need people at work to like you because you go back home to your family or to your friends or to whomever and they like you. 
So you don't need people at work to like you because at work you are supposed to produce output that adds value. Once I kind of cleared that in my head and I stopped thinking what anybody thought and I was just focused on the target or whatever I was trying to achieve, then it becomes a very powerful tool for you, like that kind of mindset. It obviously makes some people uncomfortable because they keep asking themselves why, where does she get her strength? Why she likes that? Why doesn't she care what people think? Why doesn't she care what people say in cafeteria? But like, why would I care? I, I don't have time for that. And then some people left the company because they didn't want to deal with that anymore. And interestingly enough, those people didn't stay in the energy industry. They went into something completely different. And now when I see them five years later, they actually tell me you've changed my life or you've changed the way how I think about work. And I'm really happy now and I've moved up the company ladder in my new job and blah, blah, blah. So I suppose you kind of have a situation where at the beginning you may rub a lot of people the wrong way just because you are trying to do something in a different way than they would have done. But then my question in the back of my head was, well, if you knew how to do it, why am I here? So why was I hired if all of you are so smart and you know how to do things? So there yeah. was a reason somebody brought me to the company probably because they realize they need a fresh pair of eyes and they need somebody from a completely different mindset to break the mold and to help move the company forward. And having worked in so many different roles or in so many different industries, what is it about the energy industry that you enjoy? You know, you say it's been, what, five years now. What elements of it are kind of keep you interested and keep you excited? I think probably the combination of the job that I was previously doing, because I liked all of my previous jobs and the reason I, I would move on to another job or to another industry wasn't because I got fed up with the previous one. It was because I found something challenging in the next one. And the energy business kind of consolidates all three. So every day is different. I like you never know what the oil price is going to be by the end of the day, <laughs> how it's going to affect the market. You never know what the offshore wind projects are going to look like next month. You are never sure what the OPEC is going to do or what Putin is going to do or what Trump is going to do. So it's like you wake up every day and you are like, okay, let's just improvise. On the other hand, you do have a set of rules that you have to follow because you sell certain type of equipment and you sell them to certain type of companies. So you have a lot of boxes that you're supposed to tick. So on one hand, you improvise. On the other hand, you follow structure. And then it's a very dynamic job because you communicate with everybody in the world. So you literally do not have a feeling like I don't have a feeling that I work for a UK company or for a US company or for any kind of country defined company. I have a feeling like we are a global company that works with 70 countries on the planet and we are planning to add 10 more countries this year. So for me, like it kind of gives you the global perspective of everything and it makes you think in global terms. And it certainly made me appreciate the differences between countries and continents and even different market segments, how they write emails, how they communicate, how formal they are or how casual they are, how quick they are in making decisions, how they do business, how they close a deal, how they write contracts. I feel like I'm learning every single day 
and at the end of each quarter, when I look back to what happened in that quarter, you kind of have a feeling like you just graduated from a university <laughs> because so many things happened and you had to learn on the go. So sometimes you don't actually have a feeling like you are learning something new because you don't have a book and you are not taking notes and highlighting paragraphs. But if you look back and if you try to summarize what happened in the past year or in the past six months, you can't not see how much have you learned. And for me, I think learning or being able to accept new information and particularly new ways of doing things is crucial for this day and age because everything is moving so fast all the time with internet, with social media, with connectivity. I mean, look at the COVID situation. One day everything was fine and I was planning my trip to oil and gas council conference in Singapore and all of a sudden we were in a lockdown. So I think people who are unable to accept knowledge in any form, so it doesn't have to be formal education or formal learning, I think they just get stuck in a moment, like in that U2 song, and they can't move forward. And you have lots of companies that feel like when you walk into their office, you feel like you walked into 1989 sort of uh, dynasty scenario. <laughs> I love the idea of saying, you know, you kind of wake up every morning and just have to improvise, right? Because that's how I feel <laughs> at the moment, especially, you know, with having to try new things and kind of pivot from the usual way of working. But over the last kind of six to eight months, you know, there's been, I guess, a, a bit of a hurdle thrown at the energy industry. What does that mean for you guys at Reflex Marine? But what do you think it means for the industry as a whole in terms of us moving forward from this? I guess I think the opposite of most people, or at least the most people that I have met in this business, when there is crisis, I usually get super excited, like, yeah, crisis. <laughs> and then everybody looks at me like I'm completely crazy. And like, are you okay? Glass of water, perhaps? Because I see crisis as it's sort of, for me, it's a way that gets you outside of your box. Because if you get in the box and you start doing things to the point that they become a routine. For me, that's extremely dangerous in business because it means that you stop thinking. So if doing things has become a routine and you are thinking with half of your brain, you're going to miss new opportunities just because you are getting kind of, your brain works slower, right? When there is crisis, it's sort of, like when you don't go to the gym for a couple of months and then you start going to the gym and the first day it's horrendous and you think that everything hurts and you feel like you've been hit by a 10-ton truck. But it actually kind of makes you feel all your muscles and makes you realize that you have parts of your body that you didn't think about and that perhaps those parts of your body need TLC. So for me, crisis is like that. You realize that there are opportunities out there that you never thought about because you didn't have to, because you had enough purchase orders and you were meeting your targets and you ticked some little box in the spreadsheet. So you didn't kind of go completely out of your way to find new business or to find new opportunities because things were running smoothly. So when the crisis happens, I always think about, okay, great. So now somebody literally flipped over the table and let's see what can we do now with this and it usually so when i joined company in 2015 i joined in the middle of the oil price crisis and i sort of initiated the diversification into other market segments like lng and merchant shipping and 
defense, so Coast Guard, Navy, offshore wind, and, and so on, which helped us diversify the revenue. So the revenue wasn't coming from one single industry stream, and we weren't as dependent on the oil price as we were 10 years ago, because now we sold units to Navy, to Coast Guard, to merchant shipping people, to offshore wind people, and they work differently. For me, every time that I see that some that companies are cutting costs and like dramatic headlines in the newspapers and on websites, I always think what is behind that. They're cut costs, but they're not shutting down. So they still have to do work. They just have to do it in a different way. And then going back to how to, you know, how I started in the energy industry when I was asking questions, why can't we do it differently? then that skill comes an asset rather than an annoyance. So now I have more people coming to me asking, how would you do this? Or how can we do this differently? Compared to 2015, when I started, when everybody was annoyed with me, when I would say, how can we do this differently? Because they see the benefit of, okay, now this is a completely new situation. Nobody has ever been through a pandemic. So nobody has experience here. So everybody is a new kid on the block, not just me. So now we are all equal. But because I kind of had 30 years of my career thinking every day, how can we do this differently? Perhaps I have more practice than the average person sitting mm. next to me. Thank goodness for yes. that. I know you joined us for one of our debates last week looking at the industry. The topic was the industry has failed to embrace digitalization and you were agreeing that that's the case and I think that's a good example of where you know you were saying when you're comfortable and you just see the purchase orders coming in and you don't have to worry you kind of don't think outside the box and sometimes when you realize you could have done it's too late and so that's maybe an example within the industry at times where people have kind of just ridden that wave and then suddenly there's been a shift or there's been a need for a change and actually they've kind of come too late to it perhaps. Yes. I mean, what I said at the debate that I also thought about the company that I work for. So we obviously failed as well because when the oil price, we as a company, when the oil price was 140, nobody was exploring what other market segments we tap into, what other countries we could open. Nobody was thinking about let's add 10 more countries to our portfolio. Let's go into a different continent where we haven't worked before. Let's look beyond operators and drilling companies. Because every time somebody would even think that, the question was, why? We're doing fine. You know, why do you want to rock the boat? We're doing fine and deals are coming through and everybody's happy and like production is going well and like, why change? But I think you have to keep changing. And perhaps women know that more than or feel that more than men do, simply because of how we live in the world outside of work. So for most men, you would expect them to be charming and to be nice. But then if he is charming and he is nice, that's kind of ticks most of the boxes. You don't, you, we never talk about in a way that we talk about women or that other people talk about women. You have to be tall or short or slim or, you know, slender or beautiful or attractive or like there is always a much longer list of things that a woman is supposed to be than for men. So a woman is supposed to be great at her career, a good mother, taking care of the house, well-educated, you know, have a hobby, do sports, look great, 
in a bikini, you know, blah, blah, blah. For men, just as long as he has a decent job and is a nice person, it sort of covers everything, you know. Mm. Nobody's going to look at how he, what he wore to the gala night or whether he managed to get kids to school or whether he did laundry or whether he organized somebody else to do laundry for him. So I think because women are kind of the expectations for a woman are much higher than for a man, even though every man would disagree with me. I think we are more practical in how we look at the problems at work because we are trying to find a solution. We are not trying to fiddle with, like, I don't have time to talk about this for three hours. Can we just look at how this can be solved? And I think that's the main difference between how women work and how men work, particularly in this industry, which is quite challenging and you are kind of on the clock every single day. Like every project is late or it starts tomorrow. And if you are supplying something, they need it yesterday. And like everybody's always rushing and everybody's always like meeting deadlines. And I think women have this ability to put aside all the noise and just what is the main question here and how can we solve that? And I always remember when I'm in a meeting with men, like when a meeting is with mixed gender, <laughs> with men and women, usually I ask question, if a situation is serious, what is the worst thing that can happen? Because it kind of helps people focus. Like, what is the worst thing that can happen here? And let's mitigate that. And then everything else will kind of fall into place. Or the other question would be when people start dwelling too much on something. I would remember something that the guy who played Winston Churchill in the first season of The Crown said. There isn't a problem complex enough or too complex that can't be solved in 20 minutes. So 20 minutes is basically what you need to actually resolve an issue. Everything else, if you spend two hours, that's just either details or it's just noise. It's kind of people repeating what they've said already or what somebody else said, and it's just wasting time. Or like in the sound of their own voice. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, I think uh, one of the issues in the business world, not just in this industry, but like in any industry, I think people are wary of taking responsibility or being accountable. So I always ask myself a question. So if I make this decision now, what is the worst thing that can happen? And usually the answer is I can get fired. So like, okay, then I'm just going to find another job. But that gives you freedom resolving what's the worst thing that can happen and that like nobody's going to die. You just need to find another job. Sort of gives me freedom to think differently. Because if you're kind of worried or scared what somebody's going to say, how your boss is going to react, whether you are going to step on someone's toes, you kind of tie your own hands and you are unable to make a decision that is probably a good one for the business. Like if I step on anybody's toes, all I'm going to do is I'm going to say, I'm really sorry. I thought that this had to be done for the business. I'm really sorry if it hurt your feelings, but I just had to do it this way. And I hope you understand And if they can't, then it's their problem, not mine. Whilst we're talking about women and diversity, you've obviously worked across different industries. How do you see kind of diversity being either talked about or kind of discussed within the energy industry? And do you see it changing? Is it something that you think is getting better, kind of even in the short time that you've been in the industry itself? I think in the energy industry, it is changing probably by force, not by choice. So, you know, like... 
I don't know, European Union has evolved and there are different rules or laws that women have to have same rights or have to be paid same as men. So if we are going back to the oil and gas industry, they're going to comply, but not because they thought about it themselves. It's because somebody told them you have to comply with this. So that obviously still has to come from the heart, so to speak. So you have to do it because you want to do it, not because somebody told you to do it. In the industries where I worked in the past, so obviously in 25 or 30 years ago when I worked for Coca-Cola company, if you were corporate enough, so if you were wearing a three-piece suit and you were saying the right things on the meetings and you kind of were performing well, you didn't have anything to worry about regardless of your gender, of your nationality, of you know where you come from and so on. But you still had to tick some other boxes, right? In media industry, everything was about, can you do this? So I don't care whether you went to Harvard or whether you are self-educated. I don't care whether you come from India or whether you come from New York. All I care about is, can you fix this for me right now in the next five minutes? And if you can, then I want to work with you. If you can't, then all the other things are not going to help. The energy industry, obviously, because it mixes quite different poles of the spectrum. On one hand, you have oil and gas industry. On the other hand, you have offshore wind industry. So one sort of uh, collaborates heavily with universities, with researchers, with PhD people. The other one collaborates with those kind of people as well, but not it isn't positioned that's your first thought. So when we think about oil and gas industry, we don't think about them collaborating with Harvard or with MIT or with Imperial College. We think about workers on an offshore rig, or we think about films like Deepwater Horizon. When we think about offshore wind industry, we think about nice polished offices, all white, minimalistic style. Everybody looks like demigods, like Norwegian, you know, some kind of, uh, and everybody's sort of a bit yappy with handheld devices, being super tech savvy and having PhDs from whatever. So the perception is different. Obviously, neither are that picture and it's all very mixed and very blurred. Mm -hmm. But I think it's all about how we perceive them. So I don't think that a lot of people think beyond the initial perception. So I think if either industry wants something to change, they need to think about it. Listen, I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I just want to ask you one final question. It sounds like every time you come up to a big birthday, you make a change. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so I suppose kind of what's next, you know, what's kind of the, the one or next career goal that you still have on your to-do list? Well, I'm going to be 50 in... 2022 so not that long ago and yes I have thought about it like I have thought what is next like would I want to stay in the energy industry or would I want to would I want to do something completely different I think I would like to stay in the energy industry for a bit longer but I think I would also like to revolutionize it in some way even if it means revolutionize it just within the company that I work for 
I think women are a true asset for the industry because of all the things that I've said before. So they're more practical. They tend to be more focused. Usually they leave their egos at home. So you don't have to sort of have a conversation. Mine is bigger than yours. They're just trying to get the thing done. So in that sense, I think the industry has to make space for women not because somebody told them to, but because they recognize the added value. I also think that bringing people from different industries is always a good thing. So bringing people with different perspectives, different experiences, different ways of doing things, it can't be bad. It can only make you more resilient. So I think that should improve as well. And then bringing people from all walks of life or all parts of the world into your productivity mix or your output mix. Also, I always see it as a good thing. So I would I don't know how I can do that. Maybe some kind of knowledge transfer or some kind of maybe collaborating with the universities or with new generations or maybe doing some kind of trainings, but still within the energy industry. Well, I'm sure whatever you turn your hand to, it's going to be a huge success. And thank you so much for your time this morning and for answering all of my questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you for um, having me. And I always have a great time with you guys from Energy Council. So I appreciate the invitation a lot. You're welcome. Thank you so much and speak soon. Great. Thank you. Bye.